Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. This is episode number two of the Azure Security Podcast. My name is Michael Howard, and with me today is Mark Simos, Gladys Rodriguez, and Sarah Young. And we also have a special guest today to talk about Azure Containers, uh, Michael Withrow. How are you guys all doing? Great. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So as soon as you said, great first, Gladys, so what have you been up to the last couple of weeks? Well, I've been working on IP development. Um, Microsoft Consulting Services uh, has a service called Security Operations Services, uh, which helps uh, with the implementation of uh, Microsoft Cloud Threat Protection Services, such as Defender Advanced Threat Protection, or ATP. Office 365 ATP, Azure ATP, Microsoft Cloud Application Security, um, Azure Security Center, and Sentinel. Um, What we're trying to do is um, uh, build a second part of this uh, service, which is going to be called SOS, or Security Operation Services, as advanced. And what we're aiming to do is help uh, customer operationalize uh, the services. Um, this is uh, really important because many customers have, have said they don't know how to use the tools, uh, the processes, the uh, governance is not updated. So we are helping them with that. In addition, it helps um, with uh, strategies like SOAR, uh, security operation, uh, um, automation and re- uh, reporting, and zero trust journey uh, that many organizations are, are taking. Actually, before you go a little bit further, and I know Mark has been heavily involved in this as well. Um, I mean, we hear a lot about zero trust. Can you give like, you know, the elevator pitch? I mean, what is zero trust and why should people care? I'm going to try to uh, define a little bit of this, but I think Mark can do a better job. (laughs) How about this? Why don't you go first and then I'll throw mine in. Okay, so Microsoft, um, I, to me, I, I think we are years uh, advancing the concept of zero trust. And, and sometimes uh, our customers uh, think uh, that our zero trust is the same as others. But basically we're looking at zero trust uh, as a strategy that assumes no trust. And that means that verification must happen for all user devices, application, et cetera, no matter where they are. Um, this include uh, on-premises network. So for this strategy to work, services must be interconnected and interoperate together to share data um, so verifications can be done. Mark, do you want to add something? Oh, yeah. So I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, the way that the way that I think about it is a lot, a lot to do with the history of it. So there's sort of the negative definition of, you know, we don't trust the network anymore because the attackers fish in and credential theft around the network. And the stuff isn't even on the network, you know, uh, especially in the SaaS space, but to a degree IS and PaaS as well. And so it's basically how do you provide that security you need for your apps, your data, et cetera, on an untrusted network or on a public network. So so that's really, to me, what Zero Trust is about, which is sort of overcoming that, that old crush, that old assumption that, hey, we're on a secure network, so it's okay. Well, it's actually not okay. And what do you have to do to fix that? And, and there's a lot of big things, a lot of small things, um, but it usually starts with identity and access control, sort of that productivity access control type of space. Um, and then there's a lot more to be figured out in the data center, IoT, OT. But you know, how do you take this general purpose 
um, uh, principle or security strategy to all those spaces. Um, so that's that's kind of the way that we're thinking about it. And I, I think from what I've seen um, from like NIST and Open Group and others, um, that's generally where the consensus is going is, you know, this sort of all up security strategy. So this is going to sound like a, I don't know, perhaps a cynical question. I mean, with Zero Trust, are we there or is this something that will just continue to evolve and we sort of have some of the moving parts, but we don't have everything? Or I mean, are we in a good position to so I, for people to build Zero Trust networks? Yeah, so I think Zero Trust, because it's not like it's not a product or a piece of software or something you throw in your 19 inch you know, on-premise data center rack. Um, Zero Trust is a strategy, right? So it's going to touch everything in security. It's going to use stuff that already exists. It's going to change things that already exist. It's going to introduce new things. I think we're close. We have all the capabilities technically to do the first part, which is productivity things, right? Like who, um, like making sure that the user's account and device aren't compromised before they get access to an office document, to a database, et cetera. Like validating that source on the access control piece, we've got pretty mature, you know, between conditional access and some of the third parties that do a pretty decent job as well. Um, I think we do much better at Microsoft, but, you know, there are others out there that are doing a pretty good job. Nice. Um, I think we're pretty solid on that first part. Like, I feel like that's a solved problem, if not an implementation, at least in available technology. Um, how do you do that in a data center when you're talking service accounts and there's not an actual person to bother with an MFA prompt? Um, those kind of problems have yet to be solved in a really good way. Um, and then the IoT OT just takes that same data center problem and multiplies it by millions and billions. So I think we're on a journey um, is, is, a, is a short way of saying it and that we've got that first phase pretty well figured out technically. Um, people process have to follow. But um, it's just, you know, that we're kind of, you know, in the early stages of it, but still really significant progress. And that's where we are trying to help with this uh, uh, SOS advance. Um, we, uh, organization do not uh, realize how much impact uh, to the processes uh, this modernization bring because of the automation. So uh, we're trying to help with the people uh, process um, uh, area. Carbon-based processors. <laughs> yep. Nice. I mean, that certainly gives a lot more uh, um, a lot more context, I think. It sounds like this may be an episode in the future as well. Um, yeah, go through it in more detail. Uh, anything else from you, Gladys, before we move on to uh, other people? No, that's all. Thank you. Fantastic. Hey, Mark, um, so what's uh, what's been in your mind the last couple of weeks and what's uh, sort of taken your Peter interest in, in the news? Um, a couple of things um, that I've been working on. Um, the uh, two, we've actually managed to release a couple things I've been working on for the past um, couple weeks and months. Um, the first is a uh, blog on uh, it's part of our CDOC series, our Cyber Defense Operations Center series. Um, it's the latest episode in that, and we it's kind of a day in the life of an analyst. And we cover this is the second part of that. The first part was like how does an analyst go through the uh, the investigation process, and you know how do they you know what are the stages of that, and how do they use the tools, the technologies, how do they think about it, thought process, etc. And then this one was the remediation. So once you sort of understand the attack, you know do you do big bang cleanup or do you clean as you go, as you find compromised resources, and what are the criteria for that? How do you clean up? Uh, how do you clean up all the different types of users, machines, service accounts? You know, how, what are the processes for that, and the tools? 
um, you know, lessons learned to avoid repeat incidents. How do we make sure that we don't, you know, keep having the same incident over and over again? Um, and then a little bit of uh, commentary on sort of what's happened with COVID and how that changed uh, the trending on it. And so that series has been uh, very, very helpful. You know, I've learned a lot as we've, you know, written and, and worked with the analysts in our SOC to, to do that. So that's been one of the big things that we finally got out the door, took a month or a couple of months. And then uh, we also, um, something else that's taken a while is we've got these first uh, major security articles in the cloud adoption framework or CAF as we like to call it. Um, we got a getting started guide on kind of what do you do first, next and later for Azure security stuff, um, you know, programmatic um, through technology. Um, security strategy, like what does a good security strategy look like? You know, what mindsets you need to update, et cetera. And then also roles and responsibilities. So what are all the different um, roles within security and how is this cloud modernization affecting them? So um, went into uh, quite a bit of detail there. So those all posted and published and we'll uh, put the links in the show notes. Fantastic, anything else? That's all I got. That's it, fantastic. Okay, Sarah, over to you, what do you got? Oh, well, let's see. Um, in a continuation from uh, what I was talking about last time, um, I've still been working more on Windows Virtual Desktop Monitoring because uh, since we last talked, we've also released a new version of Windows Virtual Desktop. Um, and why this is interesting from a security perspective is we changed up all the logs and the tables and how we connect it to log analytics. So it's actually much nicer, much more user friendly. Um, but it means that um, all the queries and cool things that I've been working on uh, need to all be changed up. So that's what I've been learning about for the last couple of weeks, how, how we've changed that. But the new version is very nice, um, much more intuitive, uh, and it's all done, all can be done through the portal GUI as well. It's, it's much nicer. Um, but yes, just when I was learning the old one, we did a new one, but that's cloud for you. So, so there you go. Um, but um, so that's what I've been looking at. Also, um, I personally am getting ready, um, which is this is great preparation for me. Um, I've been I'm preparing to do a little segment on, on MS Build next week. Um, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, MS Build is running virtually, unsurprisingly, at the moment for like 48 hours. Um, it's being run um, in blocks through different geographies in the world. So I think we're going uh redmond australia um the uk um and we're doing a loop a couple of times um and i am actually doing a segment on container security so this is a, so keeping with the theme of the week for me is all about the container security so um yeah that's probably um mostly what i've been up to at the moment um yeah i think that's 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 probably about it the cool thing, the other cool thing as well, though, is um, obviously we did announce, I'm going to stick with containers this week. It's all about the containers for me. Uh, we did announce that um, uh, Windows containers have gone GA on AKS, which is cool. And also, again, more security specific, uh, there'll be private clusters and managed identity support in AKS went GA as well in the last couple of weeks, which is very cool. Um, and I'm going to stop there because I don't want to talk too much about container security when we have special guests to talk about it. So I will stop. But that's kind of what I've been doing the last couple of weeks. So um, you guys should be really proud of me, though. I mean, uh, all this container stuff and container security stuff, I actually stood up my first Kubernetes 
cluster this week with my first app. Um, it wasn't fantastic, but you know what? It worked. I tore it down. I increased uh, the number of pods, and I did all sorts of funky things, and it all it all just worked. I was actually very, very proud of myself. Um, so on, on my front, that was just me experimenting, by the way. Uh, on my front, still doing a lot of work in healthcare, uh, where obviously security requirements are absolutely paramount. We're talking here about moving um, patient healthcare information um, into Azure. Uh, a lot of uh, very strict controls and very strict re- you know, policy requirements around protecting that data. Um, what's interesting is, uh, you know, one of the things I love about this job is I get to work with really, really smart people who know stuff that I know nothing about. Um, so, for example, I've, this week I've been spending a lot of time working with uh, with big data and data analytics and data scientists um, who use you know tools like Databricks and other tools like that. And um, yes, I got to learn a little bit more about Databricks this week. Uh, Interestingly, and I did not know this at all, uh, Databricks has this notion of notebooks. And I realize some of you out there are like, well, duh, you know, that's what Databricks is all about. Um, But you can write custom code inside of a notebook. And um, we were decrypting highly sensitive patient data um, on the fly uh, and then ingesting it into Databricks. Which was uh, which was really nice, uh, you know. So I learned a lot there. Um, still continue to do that work in healthcare as well as there's a couple of other customers I'm working with as well. But uh, obviously healthcare have very stringent security and privacy and compliance requirements. Uh, I also just something completely out of the blue. I was a judge actually last week in a thing called the Youth Code Jam, uh, which is a whole bunch of um, school kids who had written code and uh, to you know little games or business solutions or, um, you know, graphics or simulations. And uh, I got to review five different projects and it was such a lot of fun. It really, really was. It was so much fun looking at, you know, the code that's being written by the sort of the next generation. Uh, Although I did find one guy, one uh, one person in one of the teams actually had an embedded admin password in some Node.js code. So I uh, kindly suggested that he put that into a configuration file or secret repository um, we sort of need to nip, nip that one in the bud i don't want people embedding passwords in code but uh, this is a node.js application it was uh, integrated with twilio so it was doing sms it was like a little little game you could play uh, over text messages um, and the node.js at the back end was handling all the questions and answers it was um it was really cool it was really cool really fun to do that kind of stuff you know a little bit different uh on the news front, uh, we've just uh, announced uh, actually the title of this blog post is Accelerating Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Compliance on Azure. Um, this is uh, to do with uh, customers who are providing to the, to the Department of Defense. Um, there is a little, actually quite a bit of intersection with uh, programs like FedRAMP, um, NIST 800-53, and NIST CSF. Uh, but if you're interested in that stuff, we're going to have we're going to have uh, links in the in the show notes. Uh, just one, you know, another aspect of compliance uh, of which uh, you know Azure really excels. So that's all I have from me. So this is our first time. Uh, we're going to have a a guest speaker, which is uh, which is great. I've actually had the privilege of working with uh, with our speaker on a couple of engagements. Uh, the gentleman's name is Michael Withrow. Uh, 
Michael has been involved in container security before container security was was a cool thing to do. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Sarah because she's such a container Kubernetes nut. And uh, let Sarah and Michael uh, have a chat about container security. Over to you, Sarah. Okay, well, pressure on for interviewing. So, Michael, welcome to the podcast. You're our first ever guest. Thank um, you very much for having me. Oh, it's it's awesome to have you, and thank you for making the time. I guess probably to start with, do you want to introduce yourself, like your elevator pitch about what you do and uh, what you do at Microsoft at the moment, what you've done before, and uh, yeah, anything, anything. Tell us about yourself. Sure, thank you very much. So, uh, so currently, I function as a solution architect in uh, in Microsoft Services, uh, helping customers with uh, all their container-based work, uh, from implementation to uh, security and and all those different things. Um, I've been at Microsoft all up about eight years. Um, I did take a four-year break to work with the container security startup company. Um, and now I'm back at Microsoft, uh, kind of carrying on that work. Awesome. So um, tell us about, um, of course, the container security is a huge space, um, as, as you and I both know. Um, but um, what would you say for um, anyone maybe starting off, if someone was wanting to use Kubernetes today um, and set themselves up a cluster um, to run some applications on, what would you say are the main considerations or pertinent issues that people should consider? Sure. So where most customers start out um, from a container perspective is that at the end of the day, uh, Docker and Kubernetes just really you know, represent a different way to package up an application, right? And so uh, from, from that particular perspective, where customers really start out is, um, you, know, what, you know, what tooling exists out there to provide security? What kind of things do I need to think about from a security perspective? And more importantly, do I just take my existing security practices and tools and do I apply them into the container ecosystem, right? And so in a lot of cases, the answer to that is no, you do not, right? As you're kind of going through, because at a base level, the, the construct that I always try to help customers understand is that containers by nature are fundamentally different than the traditional virtual machines um, as everybody's used to. Containers by nature represent a stateful, you know, um, uh, basically a minimalistic uh, stateful based or stateless based entity, I should say, as you're kind of going through uh, from actual perspective. And so, and, and, and declarative to be even more important, right, as you look at it from a capabilities point of view. And so, when you look at it from a base perspective, um, you know, obviously the footprint uh, of that container is going to be much smaller, right, um, as you're kind of going through. But at the end of the day, um, it doesn't decrease the attack vector, right, as, as you're kind of going through. And so, as you start out, what we're seeing from most customers and where most customers essentially start out is, hey, look, let's get this infused into the build pipeline, right? So there's these all these cool concepts that everybody talks about, about DevSecOps, right? And so containers is where most customers really start putting that into practice, right? And so there's obviously an operational component that's involved with that. There's obviously a tooling component that, that's involved with that. But it's kind of going through, uh, you know, it's pretty important to understand that, you know, once I integrate in that build process, what's the impact to, you know, my my developer ecosystem and more importantly to my security operators, right? 
Because one of the things that we see in a lot of different cases pre-containers, right, and everybody on this call is, is security, so they know this as well, is in a lot of cases, security it, it, you know, represents an after-the-fact-based configuration, right? So a developer builds code, developer passes code up through the pipeline. They might do some basic analysis on it, right? Uh, but they don't really have any real responsibility because they're really responsible for the functional uh, aspect of that particular application. They pass it over the fence, and now security operations starts taking that application on, right? Now they start, you know, find a bunch of vulnerabilities or compliance issues or whatever might exist with that particular container. Now they pass it back, but that developer's moved on. They're on different tasks now, right? So who's responsible for that remediation, right? These are typical things that, that happen in organization after organization. So where DevSecOps really kind of changes the game is that it's really now infusing that security conversation into the developer uh, experience and now passing some of that ownership over to the developers. So now they're not only responsible for that functional test, but they're also starting to own some of that security conversation as well. It's not fair expected that they would own all of that stuff, but they can definitely own some of it. Let's look at like the vendor status as an example. If it has a fixed status, is there any reason the developers can't fix that, right? Is one of the, the, the starting points that I usually kind of bring into the conversation. Yeah, makes sense. Um, another question I get asked a lot in my job in uh, when, when we come up against container security is, why would you use a managed Kubernetes cluster over just building one up, you know, straight, straight yourself? Um, obviously, with a security perspective kind of lens on it, because it comes it comes up quite a bit in 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 my uh, in in the conversations I've had with customers. Right, right. So that's that's a good that's a good point, right? And this is the 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 old adage, and Mark mentioned it early on as well. This is the old IS versus PaaS based conversation, right? And so um, it depends kind of on your configuration at the end of the day, but as you look at it and from an IS perspective, you own the entire stack, right? And what a lot of customers don't understand or what a customers learn right out of the gate when they start going into this open source world is the amount of churn that happens, right? Um, at the end of the day, when you look at a typical Kubernetes cluster, there's a myriad of tools, 10, 20, 30 different tools that I have to deploy into that cluster to actually make it enterprise grade. And oh, by the way, those tools are all open source as well, and they all have a different release cycle. They all have different bugs and issues and, and, and uh, problems I have to deal with from an operational perspective, right? And so I would say more cases than not, this is one of the shining moments when you definitely wanna move into the pass-based realm. And, and we're actually seeing this at massive clips as customers moving off of infrastructure managed clusters over to past managed clusters because there's so much complexity, so much risk that goes with managing that entire footprint from a platform perspective. It's much simpler to sign that off to a third party vendor, right? Or to say a vendor from, from that perspective. And so obviously when you look at it from our perspective, whether it's you know, whether it's Google or Amazon or IBM Bluemix or whatever it might be from an from an Azure side, right? Obviously the, the cloud construct is going to provide inherent security uh, from that. You know, you look at the native capabilities that you can plug in there from an ELB, from the app gateway, from the Azure firewall on the edge, right? For ingress and egress as an example. But then as you look at it from an operational perspective, that's one thing a lot of people don't really think about is that. You know, because it's open source, 
you know, the cluster itself is going to go through multiple upgrade iterations, right? It's kind of going through. And then the nodes that run that cluster, they have issues as well. I got to maintain those particular issues, right? And so, so now by passing some of that off of a past perspective, now I say as an example, you look at like Azure AKS as an example, one of the big differentiators that we have over some of the competitors as an example is that the, the, the master tier of that cluster is essentially a managed entity, right? And so from a customer perspective, they just manage the nodes, that the worker nodes that run the applications and those worker nodes subscribe to the master tier, right? And then obviously from a Microsoft perspective, you know, we will own, you know, the wrapper, so to speak, of that master tier, the fault tolerance, the blue green, those kind of things like that. Um, but then it also kind of brings in the security construct, right? Because as we kind of go through, you can look at like one of the big attack vectors for a cluster is of course the API service, right? Which is one thing that a lot of people don't really think about because in an open source world from that master perspective, that API service has keys to the kingdom. Not only can it talk to the worker nodes, but it can also talk to the applications, the pods running up, a, up a, on top. If you have any secrets integrated, it can it can crack open those secrets as an example. So it is a significant you know, uh, attack vector that exists within the ecosystem. So the past services will help to secure that API service as a basic example. Cool. And uh, my next question for you, actually, you've almost completely, I think you've almost covered it off anyway, but I'll ask is another thing that I find um, when I've been talking to people about um, Kubernetes and, and putting containerizing things, putting it in the cloud is um, about shared responsibility model, because, of course, um, everyone talks about the shared responsibility model, who's responsible for what. But when we move into container land and orchestrators, I think it's not quite as clear cut sometimes. Um, I don't know if you found the same thing when you've talked ah, about that's a, Yeah, that's a um, great talking point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, any kind of advice or, or kind of really quick, quick, simple ways that you explain that to, um, to folks? Because it is um, moving away, because of course it's not IaaS and, and, and AKS um, managed Kubernetes is a PaaS service, you're right. But I think understanding that shift in shared responsibility um, is tricky when we get to containerization. Yeah, so so that is another thing that from an from an organizational perspective, which is pretty paramount, right? And so uh, I always talk about containers as the same ways to talk about clouds, the same ways to talk about like uh, VMs when they first came out, right? In a lot of cases, the technology is actually pretty simplistic, and that's not usually the bear uh, the barrier. Uh, the barrier in a lot of cases is the organization's ability to consume the technology, right? Um, and so this is definitely the case when you look at the, uh, you know, look at this particular model within uh, the container ecosystem, right? Because not only is there a shift um, from the developer perspective, because like I said, I kind of brushed on or touched on the DevSecOps based responsibility. So it's expected and kind of really implied that the developers will inherit most of the security conversation. And most is probably unfair, but will in, in, inherit a significant amount of the security conversation, right? It's kind of going through. With that being said, obviously that means a foundational shift from the security operations perspective as well, right? Because in a lot of cases where security was looked at as the bottleneck, now security becomes an enabler, right? Because now it's all about automation, right? So the, the mindset, the construct actually uh, completely changes. And then more importantly, now over everything, 
now there's a humongous footprint put on the platform side, right? Uh, to make sure it's all up and running, right? And so where the nirvana that most customers are running towards, I should say that end game that customers are kind of running to is that, and this goes into the cloud model as well, is that I want a self-service entry point, right? So I'm a developer and I want to onboard an application, right? Or I want to, I want to make basically streamline my application. I submit a request. Essentially, the platform team says, okay, give me your GitHub file, right? Uh, from actual perspective. And obviously that GitHub file is sanitized to pick their point. And any sanitation that needs to happen is the security teams will be responsible for that. But now that that, that GitHub file is, in, or that GitHub repository, think a jar file, a tar file, NPM file, whatever it might be, a .NET file, that's a sanitized file that's up in some repo somewhere. The platform team, the automation will grab that, inject that in, create, inject that file into a container, you know, from Ubuntu, expose 80, copy or add, whatever it might be, and then run something, right? As a typical Docker file that you'll build out. And then basically, you know, that's just the Docker endpoint, right? You can run some analysis against that. Now you start talking about static analysis uh, from a capabilities point of view. Then as you're going through, uh, from that point, once you've done that static analysis, as you're kind of moving it, it on, right, now the platform team is going to go through, helm chart that stuff out and get it running in the cluster, right? So making sure that cluster stays up, the cluster's available, um, you know, what's the storage? Is that a stateful application versus a stateless application? I got to worry about storage. Um, now I still have the network constructs. I have ingress, egress to worry about. I have, you know, layer seven attacks, layer three attacks, my east-west attacks, my north-south based attacks, my role-based access identity attacks, you know, Trojan horses, all that stuff to kind of really be concerned with, right? And that's a big thing that a lot of organizations aren't prepared for. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. So I'm gonna hit you with my well, a couple of last questions, because again, stuff that comes up a lot that um, I always like to hear other people's opinions on. For tooling, of course, Kubernetes itself is open source and a lot of things that go with it. But for tooling, obviously, particularly around security tooling, do um, lots of people ask me, is it better to use open source or is it better to use sort of paid for licensed products? I know, I know what I, the answer I give here, um, and obviously, I think that this is um, quite um, obviously every organization has to make their own decision. But of course, traditionally, I think there's a, a certain hesitation to use open source. Um, you know, the traditional mindset is licensed things are, are better. I think obviously that's changing in this environment. Um, but um, what what would you say to that when customers ask you that question? I'm sure you must have had it before. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite questions, right? So I'll start out. Um, I've actually heard from more than one CISO as an example um, in my former life that if it's if it's not a million dollar security solution, it's not a real security solution, right? As an example, right? So there's still, to your point, there's still this, obviously there's massive adoption from a open source perspective, right? So, I mean, Azure is completely adopted, it's signed off. It is a huge growth vector. Everybody's going towards it, right? It's kind of going through. Uh, you could say in some uh, cases that container security is still a new realm. Uh, it's kind of going through, you know, it's really only about five years old, four or five years old as you kind of go through from, from that perspective. But there's still a long way to go from a security construct perspective. What most customers, what one thing that a lot of people don't understand is that um, if, if you remember back in the days of the term VM sprawl, right? 
they have not seen anything until they've seen container sprawl, right? Where in a VM world, you might have 100 VMs. Those 100 VMs might be 500 containers. Where a lot of customers are trying to go and where they want to be is on a single pane of glass, right? And that's one of the big things that you kind of think through is that single pane of glass is really, really important. And so when you look at most open source tools out there, there are good open source tools, but they are very focused on edge-based capabilities, right? And so with that being said, now as you look at, I'm using 10 tools across my, my ecosystem, right? Now I've got 10 open source tools to handle that. So now I've got 10 different UIs that I'm kind of looking at, all of them with niches, right? It's kind of going through. Um, so where the where actually things live at is it going to a paid solution right so whether it's the cloud provider themselves the cloud native security capabilities having that or going to third party um is kind of where most customers are sitting at don't think that there's a you know gartner magic quadrant for this particularly yet uh, but there are definitely leaders in the space that kind of exist to provide that holistic automated base security right and that's where i was going with my train of thought is that you know when you look at their churn and the rate of change that happens with the containers, um, it is all about automation, right? And so, so you need a tool that is gonna basically automate out your security. And that's one of the big things when you're looking at across the ecosystem, what tool will help me achieve my security posture I'm trying to get to. The first question that I would ask is, does it provide the automation I need to handle the churn and the rate of change that I'm gonna be adopting when containers comes into the environment? Yeah, I no, I agree with you. That is a very, very sensible approach, I think. And yeah, as you said, I think open source tools tend to be quite niche. So you end up with lots of them, which, you know, cannot be as easy to manage. But, you know, each business to their own needs to have a think about it, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think we're kind of almost up for time. So I'm going to ask you my final question. Well, two questions, which is... Is there, um, if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of advice about container security, um, what would it be? And because, as you said, it's a pretty new topic, you know, in the grand scheme of things, are there any resources um, or courses or anything that you would recommend uh, someone who was starting out in the container security space um, where they could go to to learn more about it? Yeah, so I... Thank you. So that's a good segue. So um, Gartner obviously is a great start, right? So Gartner started to put out a bunch of uh, documentation around this. Obviously, like I said, there's not a quadrant for this yet, but there is a lot of guidance out there. So every single enterprise has access to the Gartner reports uh, to start to see what the, the market leaders are that exist out there. Um, obviously, going to trade shows and to conferences, that's where a lot of those vendors are going to be as well. Um, there's there's pretty good blog posts that exist out there. There's some YouTube videos that exist out there. I think I have a YouTube video or two out there um, as a kind of going through from that perspective as well. Um, but like I said, no, like I said, no magic uh, quadrant that I can go and hit that would kind of give me that information. But there's definitely plenty of stuff out there to start start investigating. Yeah, I mean, I'll just add on to that. Um, I know that. I'm not sure they've worked out precisely um, how this is going to work yet, but of course, because of everything going on in the world, a lot of the container security conferences, the big ones like KubeCon, et cetera, are going online now. So um, it might be more accessible uh, to people who might not have been able to travel before. So it's always worth looking those up. Yeah. I'm not sure. so 
Oh, I'm not ahead. sure how to work with the vendors um, and, and the booth exactly, but um, I'm sure they'll be working something out. <laughs> yeah, and so like I said, just to kind of wrap up from my end, right? So what I always tell customers is really, really important is that, um, you know, you definitely want to understand the attack vectors that exist in the containerized ecosystem. There's a component of static analysis, uh, you know, before it's built, and then there's the runtime security, right? And then all across that stack, as I go back, that runtime or that automation is really, really important as you're looking at the tooling. Um, so th there's definitely a growing uh, ecosystem. It's one of the hottest markets on the security side. There's tools popping up every single day. Um, but as you kind of look at it, there's definitely two or three clear cut winners from a lifecycle based perspective is like one UI to kind of, you know, hit everything is kind of going through. So as you're an enterprise trying to figure out which direction to go, you need to figure out what's important and then kind of, you know, look at the tooling that kind of handles that for you. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Um, did anyone else um, have any questions that they wanted to add on or any closing comments around container security? I know it's my baby, but I don't mind other people jumping in. Actually, yeah, I, nothing, got, they go, Mike. I got one quick question. Like one of the things that I've started to see is that I'm starting to understand that containers are sort of a interim a little bit between IaaS and PaaS, because it's not like you don't have to fully refactor your app completely to be this modern codeless serverless thing. But you know, it is much more modern and, and more abstracted from sort of the old I have to manage resources, memories, et cetera, from the classics. I mean, is that kind of where you see containers as well as sort of halfway between IS and PaaS? I'm just kind of curious on, on your on your thoughts there. No, that's that's a that's a good one. So I actually put it right in the modernization track, right? Because one of the big things that um, the reason that there's such a massive adoption of a containerization is because of the portability of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that re really fits into the modernization. So even for customers that are still at this point very cloud adverse. Right, they can build that container now on prem, and then that gives them a shorter runway or shorter path to get up to the cloud later. Right, as they're kind of going through, and so I look at it strictly as a modernization track. Awesome, thank you. Nothing from me. I certainly learned a few things along the way there, though. That was really useful. Of course, the other thing is the understanding that a container, for the most part, is a very small slice of functionality. Right, we're not talking about big, heavy VMs here that have multiple moving parts. We're, we're talking about something that's relatively small, relatively self-contained, can be analyzed from a security standpoint, probably a lot easier than a virtual machine running a whole series of processes. Is that a, is that a fair comment? Yeah, that's actually, I was just talking to a customer right for this podcast about that very same topic, right? So a container by nature is going to be fractionally smaller than a traditional VM, right? Uh, you look at right now a, a Linux-based or an open-source-based containers around 300 to 500 meg, really 300 to 400 megs in a lot of different cases, right? When you look at like a Windows container or a Windows VM, you're talking about multiple gigs, right? And so not only does it, it's going to take me a while to do runtime analysis to step through all the different content, right? But now the chances for false positives, the chances for, you know, different, different things to come in greatly increases with that scale, right? It's kind of going through. And so that minimalistic footprint is really, really important when you start getting into the runtime conversation as well. So obviously there's inherent benefits on the developer side, but on the security side, on the runtime, that's where containers really start to differentiate um, because of that minimalistic based footprint, right? Like I said, really simply as you look at a typical Docker file, 
it's from expose add run right you know you're doing like three or four things in there you know it's going to have four lines in there and so that's essentially so i've got one port one process one storage account you know a couple of system calls that's the makeup of that container right so when i start getting into runtime right obviously i can profile that really really quickly my chance of false positives drastically decreases and now I can more effectively go into proactive-based security, which is another thing that a lot of customers don't think about, is that this is an opportunity to really introduce proactive instead of the traditional reactive-based security. Because of that small footprint, I have a very small degree of error that I have to deal with, so I can effectively build and enforce a runtime topology that meets my security requirements. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, really appreciate that. I'm glad it's anything from you. No, I had a similar a similar question because I keep hearing uh, customers uh, asking what when should I choose a virtual machine uh, versus a container? And Michael went through it uh, most of it. Perfect, thank you. Um, well, with that, I think we're done. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you have the honor of being our first guest, which is uh, probably a dubious honor, but hey, there you go. Um, unless there's any final thoughts from every, anybody. Um, I'll go ahead and wrap this up. So any final thoughts? Nope. No, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks again, Michael. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.azurewebsites.net. If you have any thoughts or questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is taken from Mixer.org under the Creative Commons license.